Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest David Schreiner Khan. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. Awesome. So before we get started, could you tell folks who maybe haven't heard your name before what you're all about, what you do, what's your mission in life? My, my mission in life is to help corporate refugees start, run, and grow their own businesses so they can do more of what they love and get paid what they're worth. And this really mirrors my own story. I spent the first 28 years of my career as an employee, primarily in executive roles. And in 2006, left my last job, started a solo consulting business. And now we serve folks that are trying to do what I did, which is to leave corporate behind and make make their own business work for them and support their lifestyle. Hmm. After all that time in-house, what was there something particular that prompted you to go out on your own? Yes, I got pushed, <laughs> like, <laughs> like many people. So it wasn't the only time I was pushed. Um, I was trained as an engineer, had two engineering jobs. And just after my second annual review in my second job, when I got a nice review and, and a big raise, a month later, my boss called me into his office. He said, David, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you're doing a great job. The bad news is you don't have a job here anymore. <laughs> and right, I was I was young and naive and I was doing what I was taught to do in engineering school, which is focus on solving engineering problems. What I didn't focus on was the fact that the company that I worked for had lost a huge portion of their business and ended up firing a significant chunk of the staff. Mm. So I wasn't alone, but I was still unemployed. Yeah. And you know, I, I looked ahead at what was going on in the world and, and in my field, and I saw that there was actually, it was a time of a lot of corporate turmoil. And I actually, I worked for a smaller company. There were, I'm guessing, maybe 150 engineers on staff. And, you know, in, in school, I, I think the, the role model was somebody that worked for one of the, you know, Fortune 100 or, or certainly Fortune 500 corporations. Yeah. And in those days, this is before there were 401ks and IRAs in America. And so the the model was you went to work for one of these big companies. And if you stayed there, usually it was like 20 plus years, you were eligible to receive a pension. And in those days, pensions were defined benefit. So you really, if, if you wanted to be able to have money in your retirement, you actually needed to be with one of these companies for a long time. And I mm -hmm. saw that at that point, some of these companies were were going through the same kind of turmoil that my small company went through and there were these you know guys that were being fired that were in there mostly in their 50s and in many cases they were a little bit short of what they needed in order to be fully vested in these pension plans and i'm like i don't know if this is really where i want to go with my life mm -hmm. and i did a lot of soul searching and ended up and i thought about entrepreneurship at that point um, i grew up in a very risk averse family both my parents were employees their entire lives. I, I didn't know anybody who was an entrepreneur. I had no idea even how to do it. Mm. So I sort of was intrigued by the idea, but had no clue how to execute and ended up just switching careers and going into the nonprofit sector, which I thought would be a little bit more humane when it came to employer-employee relationships and, and a little bit more humane about loyalty working in both directions in that relationship. Right. I learned over the years, I was in the nonprofit sector for 23 years, I learned that some nonprofits worked that way and many of them didn't. And many of them followed the same kind of, I would say, employment habits that 
for-profit companies had. And, you know, the seeds were planted from that earlier experience. And I really wanted to figure out a way to just be in control of my career and my family's financial health in a way that I knew that I wouldn't be as an employee. So, you know, in my last job, and I was in my last job for 18 years, so it was a long run. The linear move for me, I kind of, you know, peaked in what I could, in the growth opportunities in the organization. The linear move would have been to go to another organization as um, in a higher role. I, I was the, I was in a vice president role, so I was in a number two position. So I could have gone to become an executive director of another organization, or maybe the same kind of role in a much bigger organization. And, you know, thinking about my earlier experience and my desire to be in more control, I thought, well, I know people that that are consultants. I know it's possible to do this. I And as a matter of fact, in, in my role as an executive, I had hired lots of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was reviewing their contracts and the proposals and all that. So, I, you know, I had a pretty good idea of, of what I needed to do. And I thought, you know what, if, if I don't do it at the next opportunity, I may never do it. And then there was there was a change in um, who I reported to. The organization brought in a new CEO. And we know that that's often when changes happen. Yep. We had some overlap in skills. And I knew it was probably a matter of time before either I was going to leave voluntarily or I would get pushed out. I decided to wait till I would get the push mm-hmm. and then opened up my own business. Wow. Okay. That's great. It's the sort of funny thing going in the back of my mind is, is you said earlier that you're from sort of a risk averse family and, and, but then along the, the story, it's like, well, which is really the more risky thing to be, you know, an employee or sort of in charge of your own life. And I, I often think of a something I first read in Seth Godin's book, The Icarus, now I'm forgetting the name, Icarus Deception, where he talks about the comfort zone and the safety zone, and that in times of low change, they pretty much are all completely overlapped. And in times of rapid change, they are not overlapped at all. And it feels like for at least my adult life, the pace of change has just been accelerating more and more. So like the safe thing to do is get out of your comfort zone, which is exactly what you did. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So now you are helping people make the same leap. Maybe, I mean, if you could tell it from the perspective of your your personal story, it'd be super interesting. When you first went solo, who did you reach out to or what references did you reach for? Did you, you know, talk to your consulting colleagues that you'd hired in the past and sort of like, like, look for a mentor or something like that or did you just jump in the <laughs> jump in the deep end of the pool what was the process you took yeah it was both because a i jumped in because i i had as i said i sensed it, that it was coming i just didn't know when mm-hmm. and so i knew what i wanted to do but i hadn't really lined up any ducks so i left my job with no clients essentially no business plan what i knew was i i was really good at nonprofit management, particularly when it came to finance and operations, which was my sort of my niche. So I knew what kinds of problems I could solve. I knew what kinds of organizations I could solve them for, but I had no leads for business. I had no business model in mind. As a matter of fact, I remember one of my early prospects, which was a referral from a mentor. 
I had no idea what to charge or how to charge, mm -hmm. you know, which, which I, I've learned a lot about it since then. And I'm totally on the same page with you about ditching hourly billing, but I didn't know. And I, you know, from, from hiring consultants, I saw the way they priced. And in fact, many of them charged a daily rate or an hourly rate. Right. And some of them would charge a project fee. So I, I, I was familiar with, with coming up with a project fee or, a, a time-based fee. Mm -hmm. And with this client, I can't, I used a time-based fee, which I realized in, you know, in hindsight was probably not the smartest thing to do, but you know, it, it worked okay. It was a good client, a good chunk of business. You, we live and learn. Right. Yeah. I mean, almost everybody goes through that phase. Hardly, it's not unheard of, but it's pretty rare for somebody to go solo and do anything besides hourly. So, but yep. Yeah, but like I said, you live and learn. It's got pros and cons. Long term, obviously, I'm not a fan, but sometimes, you know, you got to keep the lights on. So, right, exactly. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and to answer your question about mentors, I, I did find some people who were very good mentors, one of whom was a professor at the Columbia Business School, which I had attended shortly before I left my last job. I was in an executive education program there for the nonprofit sector and became you know, developed a, a relationship with one of the one of the faculty and he was you know very generous to meet with me on a regular basis so you know we would have lunch maybe once a month and um and that was great and then there was a consultant i had hired for a project a few years before i started my business and we became friendly would stay in touch every once in a while and then that actually developed into a much deeper relationship once I started my business and I brought him in on a project, which was great. He taught me a lot a cool. as a, right. As a, basically as a subcontractor on the project I had a wealth of experience and he, somebody who had been a management consultant for most of his career. So yeah, so that was great. And then we would, you would meet periodically and we, we tried pitching a bunch of things together, most of which ended up not becoming closed business, mm -hmm. but the relationship developed nonetheless. Cool. That's nice. So, okay. So let's fast forward into, you know, what you've been doing now. You said you went solo in 2006. So we're coming up on 20 years when like, what is the scenario that like when someone comes to you, a, a corporate refugee, as you call them, which I love when they are either pushed or decide to leave their corporate job and not look for another one, which I think is an interesting decision. Where are their heads at? Like, what what is the first thing that you need to help them get their heads around for them to set them up for success? Because, and by the way, there's probably a number of people listening to this episode who have recently been pushed out of a fan company. So software developers that were making good six-figure salaries or compensation packages maybe into the 500,000s that now are sitting on a nice bank account and they don't have to rush into things. Uh, so they have time to think about whether or not they are going to go solo, maybe try and get another job. And if they are considering going out on their own, like what, what could you tell that person? So actually you just mentioned one thing, which is really important, Jonathan. And I, I got this piece of advice from one of my mentors, which is at some point you need to make a decision about whether you're going to look for another job or you actually want to build a business because they require very different mindsets very different activities, different kinds of energy. I personally find that it's really hard to split yourself into 
doing both. And what I've seen with people that try to do both is they don't really do a good job at either one. So they don't build the business all that successfully and they don't do the job hunting all that successfully. So I think you need to make a decision right up front. What do you really want long-term? What's your wish? Is your dream to be your own boss and have control over your destiny in the way you and I have just talked about earlier? Right, right. Or or do you just want the, the quote-unquote comfort of another job with a steady paycheck? And I, so I think you need to make that decision first. Uh, yeah, um, I second, totally agree. Right. Second thing is, I think it's really important to take a sabbatical. And I use mm -hmm. the word sabbatical on purpose because in our culture, sabbatical means a break from the routine. And it's a break from the routine because it gives you a, a chance to do some, some deep self-reflection with some emotional detachment from what's going on right now. And that's really important because if you've been an employee for a long time, like I was, making the shift to be an entrepreneur is going to require some big changes in your life, in your thinking, in your, your comfort with discomfort. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that are, that are different. You know, for example, when you're an employee, if you're wrong more than 10% of the time, you're probably going to hear a lot about it. As an entrepreneur, if you're right more than 10% of the time, you're often doing really well. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it's, true. Right, so you have you have to be really comfortable with just trying things when you know they're not perfect and just seeing what happens and learning from the results. And that's so different from what happens as an employee. That's just, just one example. So, so yeah, the, this idea of a sabbatical has never occurred to me, but when you said it, it immediately, looked like the answer to a problem that I have seen that never I never had a good solution for, which was that people, they go solo, they are perhaps not as financially set up as they would have liked, and they rush into the first paycheck. And, and when I say paycheck, I mean hourly billing, the first whale client they can find, and they just, they continue with this employee mentality of, of, not leading the engagement and just being told what to do like uh, a part-time employee and that employee mentality, which is, I'm not ragging on it. It's, it's like, it is the way that you should be an employee, but if you don't take a break, I love this idea of taking a break and kind of resetting so that you break all of your employee habits and you have a chance to have the breathing room to to really kind of visualize what it's going to be like in the new world order where you are your own boss you don't have to be anywhere at a particular time if you don't go find work there will be no work it doesn't just show up on your desk there's so many differences in your every single day every single day is completely different than it would have been so i, I just love this idea of taking a break to get ready for that yeah and by the way if you're not in the position where you can just sit and self-reflect for a period of time and not bring in income because you need the income in order to support your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. There are still ways you can take a sabbatical. Mm, so, right. So you could, you could accept something that just comes your way that may or may not be the ideal piece of business, whether it's as an employee or as an entrepreneur with the following caveat. I think you need to, look at it as a stopgap, as something that's interim, mm -hmm. where you're not emotionally invested in doing this kind of thing long-term. You have a 
a time frame in mind for which this stopgap is going to provide some income. And you need to do it in a way that you have enough time and bandwidth, emotional bandwidth, to do some deep self-reflection. So it's like you can do the work, but don't get all hung up about it. And make sure you have enough hours to spend working on yourself and what you really want to build long term. Mm -hmm. So to me, that still meets the criteria of sabbatical. I know you've got this list of steps. I could probably spend the whole rest of the episode talking about sabbatical. So I don't want to do that yet. So let's keep going. All right. So anyway, you do need this self-reflection period. And when you're ready for this transition, you might be in a full-time job and planning an exit. You might be suddenly pushed out. And by the way, way more people are pushed out than we realize. If you, I saw a statistic, and by the way, this isn't tracked very heavily in the US, but I saw a statistic that if you're over the age of 50, you have more than a 50% likelihood that you're going to experience involuntary job loss at some point and experience financial consequences as a result. I discovered, right? I discovered when I decided I really wanted to go sort of deep into this niche that many of my friends who were successful consultants had started their businesses when they got pushed out and they had never told anybody that. Right. I didn't tell anybody I got pushed out in 2006. Yeah, it I think it's pretty common. I've later. heard the story. I've heard this story more often than not. Like when you talk to people who, you know, like you or like me, that, yeah, that's often the case. And they just like, you know, Alan Weiss is, has a, a famous story where he's like, you know, he got fired and he said, I, he says something like, you know, I, I vowed to myself that I would never be fired by an idiot again. And, you know, something like, you know, something typically Alan, but uh, yes. yeah, it's, I think, but it's very common. That is very common. Yeah. So anyway, so you could be anywhere on this path between full-time job and full-time entrepreneur. And I actually, we have, um, a couple members of our community that are both, they're like, they're working hard and they're generating a lot of income because they're doing both. And there are reasons why they're doing both. But, and you could have anywhere from no business income to some business income to sustainable business income. And and we, we do work with people that have been entrepreneurs for a while and have sustainable business income, but they you they're usually in a stage where they feel like the business is running them than the other way around. And yeah. they're making enough money to pay their bills. So they're doing okay, but they they know something has to shift and it's not like it's not working the way it should. Um, but anyway, they, so there's, you know, there are all these different stages that you could be in. And so you really need to identify what stage are you in now and where do you want to be? And then what's holding you back? It's really important to know what's holding you back because that's what you have to work on. And then I like to to kind of lay out what I look at as maybe roughly a 12-month roadmap with five stages, five steps. Mm -hmm. And I call these aim, assess, validate, craft, and go. And in particular, whether you're, again, whether you're starting from scratch in your business or you have an existing business, if you if there's something that you want to change first the first step is aim which is be really clear on what you want to achieve and why and this requires a couple of things one is i like to ask people up front what's your exit strategy when you no longer want to be part of whatever business you're in or you want to be in at some point you are going to exit what does that look like mm -hmm. because knowing where you want to end up is going to dictate 
how you should start. You just reverse engineer the entire process. And many people don't like to think about exit strategy. I think is actually the first thing you need to think about. It's a fair point. I, I am a huge fan of beginning with the end in mind. What kind of a time frame are most of the people you're talking to looking at? I mean, are they, are they 55 and they're thinking, you know, because 10 years isn't that far away, but if you're 35, like what's the time scale when you're working with someone? Is it like a 10, like even if they're only 35, it's like, well, just planning, you're going to do this business for 10 years and then you're going to exit and then you'll do your next thing. Is that more like it or? or It's it's a personal choice. You know, somebody who's 35 may want to be working in their business until they can't function anymore, which mm-hmm. could be another 60 years. Right. Right. Or they may say, I want to do this long enough to build something where I can have financial freedom, right? Where there's, I have enough assets and income that the assets generate that will support my current lifestyle without me actually doing any more work. Right. And I think I can do this in 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's a totally different kind of exit strategy. Some people right. want to build something they can sell. Some people want to just do something where they, they love the work and they want to make income while they're doing it. And at some point they want to stop. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very personal. Uh, but yep. you need to know what it is what it is for you. And by the way, your exit strategy could change because your you know your family situation could change, your personal situation could change. The marketplace may teach you things that you didn't know about that you may change what your exit strategy is. It's okay for it to change, but whatever it is right now, that's what you need to base your plans on. Right. Yeah, it's like setting a budget in a sense. It's like it might not actually be exact or or even a, a plan of attack. It's like you know, no plan meets uh, survives contact with the enemy. But if you don't have it, you're just kind of like a kite with no string. It's just kind of, you know, just flopping around. If you do have some kind of goal, you can, or objective, you can take corrective action, revise and all those sorts of things. It's, it's super helpful. That's, uh, I like it. I like it. So as part of this initial self-reflection, besides the exit strategy, it's really important to be clear on what your vision is. Like, what's your why? What are your goals and what are your objectives? And by goals, I'm talking about something that is specific enough so you know when you're working toward them, but they're not measurable. So there's always more to do. So like like you, you're you have a goal of ditching hourly billing. Mm-hmm. Right? There's always going to be more to do. There are always more people to serve. But you know when you're working on it. And an objective yeah. might be, I want to have a hundred more people in a program within the next 12 months. That's mm-hmm. very specific. So that's right. right that's the, the the initial step. Second step, assess, is being, and this is this is also a deep self-reflective piece. What is it you're most passionate about doing? What is what is it that you're most competent at doing? And who do you want to serve? Yeah, yeah. Right. The longtime listeners will be familiar with this framework. Yeah. Yes. This is pretty common. Um, yeah. But you do you do need to gain some clarity around this. It's really important. And you need to hypo- at the end of this step, you need to have a hypothesis about a particular problem that you can solve. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the next step, validate, is gaining market confirmation. And this is a step particularly people coming out of corporate don't like doing. They yeah. don't like doing the market research. And, you know, when I say market research, this doesn't have to be something super complicated. Essentially, what you need to do is you need to have conversations with people who know about your target market and know about the problem. 
and can give you some feedback about whether there is really a need that that is out there and a problem that somebody else wants to solve. And the way I describe a, a good client is somebody who knows he or she has a problem. They want the problem solved. They're willing to get some help to get it solved. And they're, they're willing to pay for the help to get it solved. And they have the capacity to pay for it to be solved. And if they don't have all of those things, they're probably not going to be a good client. Right. Yeah. So what are some of the tactical steps that you would, that, that your, the people in your community, let's say that they take to validate ideas? Is it just, you know, networking and having with people in the, in the target market and have conversations with them or people who know them, or is it something more like floating a, like an initial, some kind of initial service and, and, and just seeing if you can sell maybe a, a very tightly packaged thing and see if there's any demand for a, a kind of starter version of this, like an assessment or a roadmap or something like what are, what do people do to get this validation? And when they, when they get the feedback, what kinds of things would you count as validation? So like that, that the hypothesis has been proven true or proven false. Like what are the, what are the smoke signals or it feels like reading right. tea leaves sometimes. You, well, the, the first thing actually is to have the conversations before you try to even create something that is very simple that you try to sell. Because what I see happen over and over again, and I have experiences myself, I've made this mistake lots of times, which is I think I see a problem that needs to be solved. I know I can solve it. And I create something that I think is relatively simple, low cost, and nobody buys. Nobody cares, right? Right. They, they um, for whatever reason. And right. I've wasted I've wasted a lot of energy thinking about it. I've wasted time and and maybe some money trying to even create something small. What's way better is to talk about talk to three kinds of people about the problem. Somebody who knows about the ideal client. So this could be somebody who maybe is is a journalist or or writes on the topic, or maybe somebody who runs a community or or is involved in an association. You know, they're they're not necessarily directly either working with the kind of target market you're talking about on solving the problem or they're not in the target market themselves but they they know about the topic mm -hmm. second is somebody who may serve your target market somebody you would describe as your ideal client but they don't solve the same problem but they'll know a little bit about it and the last one is somebody who actually is in the target market who might be a candidate for a solution but the really important thing is this is not a sales conversation i think you need mm -hmm. to you need to tell them up front i'm not trying to sell anything i just want to hear from you i just want to hear your opinion about this i would really greatly appreciate you spending you know 15 minutes 30 minutes with me for a cup of coffee virtual cup of coffee just giving me your thoughts about this idea whether you think you know whatever and and even if they say during the conversation they want to buy, you should tell them you're not ready to sell it yet. You have to do more research. You'll get back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is critical. And you're, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. There's a great book is for the, for people who want to get like super specific and, and really, like you said, a lot of people listening to this sort of engineering mindset and the idea of not knowing the answer and needing and, and needing to do this exploration kind of exercise is excruciating. 
they don't like it. They, they, I know that all of these CPA firms should go paperless and I know how to do it. And then they find out, you know, and they build something or some tool or something. They find out like CPAs don't really mind being on paper or whatever, whatever the case is. So you, they end up launching to crickets and it kills me when that happens. It's happened to me. I don't want it for anyone else. So getting into these conversations, super important, but there's also a way to have these conversations exactly like you're saying, David, where it's like, I am not trying to sell you anything. The phrase I usually use is I'm thinking about creating a service and I would love to get your expert opinion before I you know, solve a problem that doesn't exist. So it's, it's inherently in the question, it's inherent that I have nothing to sell. It's not even built yet. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a great approach. Running these conversations, I would recommend to people to read The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, which gives you language to use that will help you not lead the witness and get polite, positive feedback that's actually all lies. <laughs> but yeah, okay, this is this is great. Totally aligned here. And then, right, then the next step is craft, where you actually are deciding what business model you're gonna use to try to deliver your solution, because that's important. Mm-hmm. And again, if, you, if you're going into your own business so that you have more control over your career and your, your financial health, you want a business model that's actually going to work for you, not the other way around. Right. So what are what are some common models that your people use? There, there are several common like consulting slash coaching models where it could be that you're offering something that the that is totally do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're gonna teach the client how to do this, but they are gonna actually do it. There could be a do it with you model where it's very interactive the client is responsible for doing a big chunk of the work. Otherwise, they're not going to see success. And then there's the do it for you model where you're doing everything for them. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's an associated price point with each one. If you're if you're looking for something that you can sell in your sleep, you know, quote unquote, an evergreen, like a digital product, then it would be a do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want some if you and if you want to create something where there's an opportunity to scale where you can make more profit by and put in fewer hours over time. You need to think about what model is going to support that. So mm-hmm. digital products can support that. If you're using a consulting model, another way to do that is to start to build a team where you have either subcontractors or you have payroll and you're just running the business. You're not actually performing the work yourself. You're responsible right. maybe for, for bringing in the business and, and administering it, but you're not actually doing the work. That's, you know, it's a very different set of activities that you would need to do versus somebody yeah. who's a, a solo consultant doing all the work himself or herself. Right. Yeah. I mean, those three different, uh, those three different options are just massively different in terms, I mean, in, in every way, pretty much you could, you could be packaging up the exact same expertise that you got from your corporate experience. You've got all this strength at solving a particular expensive problem. You've validated that it's out there. And then deciding to go, on the one hand, digital products, and that could take a million forms on one end. And then on the other hand, like I, I you drop me in behind enemy, enemy lines and I take the hill, you know, like I, I do everything. And right. It's just mass. And then in the middle, or maybe, maybe at another point of the triangle, building a firm and just bringing in the business and being the administrator and not doing your craft anymore, just massively different. So yeah. Okay. So that's a good, that's a good sort of roundup. 
Right. And there, there are others. There's like, you know, there's publishing, there's paid speaking, there's sure. um, affiliate revenue. You know, the, the list goes on. There are a lot of different ways to sell your expertise. Yeah. I, yeah. Tons. And, and listeners will know where to find out more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, p- pick one, at least to start with, and then come up with your delivery method, your time frame, your pricing, and then plan to test. And then it's really all about once once you're ready to go, trying to sell the first one and learn from the results and do more of what works and less less of what doesn't. Kind of lather, rinse, repeat. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, b- business is very iterative. 100%, yes. And is that the go step? Is that the go stage? That's the go step, yeah. Okay. It's the iteration. And by the way, many people particularly those coming out of corporate where you you know you're you have this mindset of getting things right you got to get started so don't wait till you get it right just you have to have, be comfortable that it's good enough that you're not going to like totally fall flat on your face right but if you do something that is 70 or 80% of what you think it should be most clients are going to be really happy yeah don't get ready get started right so so what when somebody gets to that like that go stage what are the big blockers for people you've worked with when i mean in the validate step the first two steps are very introspective and i think says yeah and then validate is you need to start to touch the market so to speak have conversations with mm-hmm. people that are familiar with the market and then you're back to back to your own head crafting things and now it's like okay it's go time people what's the What's the step? Where do they, what are the blockers for them getting their first clients or starting to get leads, creating a pipeline, deciding how to market? Th- I mean, you didn't make any mention of like how they're going to market themselves. I suppose that would be in the craft piece where you decide how you're going to get the word out about your availability or what problems they right, solve. Right, in, and in the go step, there's there could be a lot of marketing. So fe- fear is a huge one. I, mm-hmm. I just saw a post today from someone who stepped out of her comfort zone, made seven posts in facebook and and wrote i just wish i could go back to my quieter self <laughs> what seven posts so, i don't know i don't know what the posts were whether they, they were in groups or whatever but it's like if you're not for example if you're not comfortable posting stuff on social media the first few times you do it it could be really uncomfortable mm-hmm. yeah right if you're not comfortable doing business networking. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to a, a networking meeting that had a formula and there were 30 people in the room. I had to get up and give a 60 second pitch. I'm like, I've never done this. I haven't got a clue how to do it. Mm. Right. And you you know, you feel totally embarrassed. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that for, for your folks, corporate refugees, they, they've never had to do anything remotely like marketing and sales. And they probably have a bad opinion of it. And now, oh no, I've got to do that stuff. I have to be that horrible used car salesman that I that I don't want to be. And there's this giant, I've found, even with people who, who have been solo for a long time and have just been lucky in getting referrals, that, uh, that the idea of doing anything proactive to drum up business or to just, just uh, publish, honestly, just like put your ideas in public it's just a massive resistance to that. Huge, huge. There's a total like big ick factor associated with all of the above. Yeah. 
I mean, I would, I mean, this is, this is my, a litmus test that I would have with someone is let's say I was talking to someone who is like thinking about making the decision way back at the beginning of the conversation, making the decision about whether or not to go solo or try and get another job. That would be, that's my litmus test question is like, are you willing to get good at marketing and sales? Like, are you, are you willing to pursue that as a craft the same way that you have pursued software architecture or whatever it is that you do? And if they say no, I'm like, get a job. It's like, if, if you don't even want to do that, you're going to have, you're playing on hard mode and, and there, there are ways around it. Like they could say, no, 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 I, I'll find another way. I'm going to write a book and the book is going to be great. And it's going to bring me lots of business. And, and that works too. To me, that's a very scary way to play the game because you just have, you just, you're ceding so much control to the whims of the marketplace and everything else that goes on. It, it scares me to death that somebody would take that kind of a risk. But I mean, maybe I'm wrong. What do you think about people who just are, are just not willing to, in, for example, engage in conversations or they don't want to get better at, at like a sales, con, you know, sales interview, I usually call them, you know, they prospects and they talk to them and they're like, oh no, I don't want to be pushy or whatever. As a business owner, particularly if you're talking about a solo or very small consulting coaching expert based yeah. business which is what you know m most of what we're talking about right. you're probably going to spend i'm going to say 50 percent of your time give or take Agreed. doing work that actually brings in income yep and then you're going to spend the other 50 percent of your time doing marketing sales and administration of your business because <laughs> if you don't do it it's not going to happen right it, it, right. It, this is, and, and then you don't have a business. I know. It's, this is why I was so interested to talk to you because because your particular target market, by definition, has probably been in corporate for a long time, has been an employee for a long time, and has never had to think about any of this stuff. And it's just fascinating to... Yeah. He, he, here's the scenario that I describe, what it feels like for them, mm -hmm. particularly in the beginning. Okay. You know, they're, they've been in their job or in... in in their career, 20 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. And their last job was in some kind of organizational setting where they had a full calendar, overflowing inbox, team of people to do things they weren't responsible for, and this built-in social structure. Yep. And they go out on their own and they have none of that. They, the calendar is empty, the inbox is empty. Their social structure, quote unquote, their friends from work are now ghosting them because they're like a pariah because they've left or they've gotten pushed out, which is even worse. So they have nobody to talk to. They spend all this time alone. Then they have to get up and sell something they've never had to sell before, namely themselves. And even people that have been in marketing and sales, when you're marketing or selling a company that you work for, even if you're getting paid on commission, it's still different than when you sell yourself. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's frightening. And they, they have nobody to talk to about this. Yeah. I mean, the picture you just painted is it's classic. It, yeah. It's a right. It, it's like the thing about I remember being an employee and and, it, you know, at a place where, you know, I could divide my salary by the hours that I worked. And I was like thinking in an hourly basis and and I'm like, they're billing me out at 150 and I'm only ma I'm basically making 50 of that, you know, after taxes as if as if taxes are the employer's fault. And completely disregarding the fact that 
every Monday I would come in and work would magically be on my desk. Like completely disregarding that, just like taking for granted <laughs> that that there's always a steady stream of work and and that steady stream of work would like follow me or find me if I went solo and then I'd be able to keep all $150 an hour, not, you know, not give away, you know, half or more of it to someone who's just sitting around doing nothing, air quotes. <laughs> right? It's yeah. Like, it's like, it's, it's wild. That first, then that, I love how you painted the picture of like that, so that first Monday you wake up and your calendar is empty and you're like, oh, your inbox is empty. And you're like, oh, I guess I got to do something about this. It's, it's a shock to the system. Yes, it is definitely a shock to the system, and mm. the, which is why it's so important. You know, you asked me at the beginning about mentors. It's so important to have mentors, to connect with people like you, Jonathan, you know, given the expertise that you have, what you do, and 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 the fact that there, you know, there, there are, are people that engage with one another around what you do. And I think it's really important to be in some kind of community or communities with other entrepreneurs that are going through similar kinds of situations where, you know, everybody's at a slightly different stage. You can all help one another and be in a place where there, there's, there's an opportunity for collaborative discussion around challenges where there's an opportunity to help one another. Maybe there's an opportunity to actually collaborate on work when those kinds of situations come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finding a like-minded and diverse peer group is it changed my entire business tra trajectory in 2015. Someone just randomly, it was someone I, I had, uh, I guess I hired him. I can't remember. He had done some work for me. He was independent. I was independent, but I was, I was thinking of pivoting my business and just randomly he invited me into a sort of a, uh, I wouldn't call it a mastermind. It was like a little slack room with about 10 people, all different kinds of solopreneurs and yeah, like I said, it just dramatically changed the tra trajectory of my business for the better, for the better. It was unbelievable, complete game changer. And, and to not have that, I remember, I remember when that, that sort of had a lifespan of about two years and then we all kind of leveled up so much that we weren't, it wasn't really that beneficial. We all keep in touch and stuff, but we, we used to be in there all the time. We would have hot seats and all sorts of things. And when that closed down, it was, I could feel the loss. It was like, ah, I, have, I have like literally nobody I can sort of share this win with without sounding like I'm bragging or something, or, or, or it's just inappropriate to talk about money in almost every context, every yes. other context. So it's like, where do you, you're solopreneur, money is super huge, important topic, and you can't talk to anybody about it. Like, what is up with that? <laughs> So having a peer group that is sort of in the same boat with you and and can be like, am I, am I crazy? Does this price seem right to you? Or or like, like oh my God, they picked option three. Like, you know, it's a game changer. It's amazing. Yes, yes. Great. Oh, and those, those discussions about when people are working on proposals and they talk about some of the challenges and what their questions are about how to price things in the proposal. Mm. Almost every single time I've seen those discussions, the consultant preparing the proposal ends up raising the price right <laughs> and and getting the higher price yeah. I, i've seen i've seen so many consultants make more money through these discussions mm -hmm. and rightly so they're providing value they're get you know the the 
their clients are getting a return on their investment. They're doing good work, but too many of us undercharge. It's common. Yeah. It's wild. Well, geez, I, I, we could talk all day for sure. This is, this has been great to know you a little bit better. Where could people go to find out more about what you're doing, find out about your community, and maybe they've got a friend who's corporate refugee that is being pushed, as you said, yes. redeployed um, into the so, workforce. Yeah. So the repository for it's kind of the central hub for everything we do is at smashingtheplateau.com. So we have our podcast there. We have a um, free newsletter with strategies, tips, and entrepreneurial stories that you receive every weekday. We have access to information about our paid membership community there. We also run periodic standalone workshops on some of the steps that I just ran through today. So if you're interested in having like a hands-on experience on what, what it's like to kind of craft your own plan, one of the workshops is, is a good way to test that out. Great. Well, I, I recommend people going there. I'm sure they are. Uh, longtime listeners are sensing that we're super duper aligned on all of these things. So, and I, I love that you're, I love your specific target market, the, the corporate refugees. It's so perfect. <laughs> this has been super great. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.